If you are joining us for the first time today at Substance Church, no, I am not Ronnie Martin. I do not even own a pair of skinny jeans. My legs are skinny enough that if I wore skinny jeans, it would look really bad. So the only thing that Ronnie and I have in common is gray hair and the gospel. You know, that's it. That's about it. So I love him dearly. Be in prayer for him and Melissa and Jeff and Kim. They're away at a uh, pastor's and wives retreat with the Evangelical Free Church of America. And this is a, really the weekend is built in uh, to it to where they get lots of couple time. And so the whole idea there is if the pastor and his wife are healthy, then the church is gonna be healthy. So just be in prayer for them as, as they're away. They'll be coming back uh, this evening. And be in prayer for me because... Uh, well, not only am I preaching here, but I'm also preaching at Subwoo. So uh, with four kids in tow. So enough said, right? Well, we're gonna be in Romans 8, verses 33 through 39. And I'll let you get in your electronic devices, uh, get there, there soon. Um, what I wanna do is, what I love, what Substance does all the time is pray. Pray because um, my words have no power whatsoever. If you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, their words had no power either. They, they basically depended on the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Their role, is, it is my role, is to help you consider the truths and the promises of God's word. God's role is to stir your hearts by his spirit and awaken your hearts and warm your hearts to the gospel once again, or maybe for the first time. So let me pray that God would do that. Father, thank you so much for your word, that your word and everything in it is true. And that by your spirit, our hearts can be awakened to your word, to the promises that you have given us in your word. These glorious promises that we're gonna look at this morning, God, I pray that you would warm our hearts once again to your gospel. Lord, may it be your words that are shared this morning, not mine. All for your glory, God. In Christ's holy name I pray, amen. So Romans 8, verses 33 through 39. Romans 8, verses 33 through 39. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, 
For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Well, I'm going to uh, make a, a truth statement here about all of you sitting here. My truth statement is this. All of you, all of you fall short every week, every day of your lives in the sense that you forget, you forget how amazing God's love really is. And how do I know that? Because I do too. We forget, in fact, I'll go a step further. What we think is that God's amazing love is to give us a stress-free life, kids that obey us every step of the way, no problem whatsoever, pain-free life, and then, then we'll know that God loves us. Then we'll know that God's love is incredibly amazing. But what we forget, what we forget is this, that it's a love that supersedes death that it's a love that meets us in suffering and hardship. It greets us and it carries us and it brings us through trials. It walks with us in the valleys of our lives. It's a love that reminds us that God is near to the brokenhearted and that he saves the crushed in spirit. So are you broken this morning? Are you broken this morning? Are you crushed in spirit? Are you overwhelmed with life? Are you confused? Are you disappointed? Are you mad at God? Because he's not bowing to your will and what you want done. I don't know about you, but I desperately need to hear these words this morning. I had a fun Walmart trip this morning at seven o'clock with four kids in tow. And I'm going through the store, I'm going, God, remind me that your love is never separated from me. Remind me right now because I'm about to kill my kids. Okay? So here's the big idea. Here's the big idea. Our hope does not depend on our love for Jesus, but on his love for us. Did you get that? Our hope does not depend on our love for Jesus, but on his love for us. So I've got two big main points here. So if you have your Bibles, what I'd like to do is, is if I can bravely do this, grab your Bibles, grab a pen if you have a pen, 
and go to verses 33 and 34 and circle that. And then right in the margin, no condemnation. That's the first point. And then go to verses 35 through 39, which is a big chunk there, and circle that, or circle those verses, and then write in the margin, no separation. This love is for believers in Jesus Christ and for all those who have repented and believed in the gospel and will repent and believe in the gospel. So let's start, let's jump right in, no condemnation. Verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now stop right there. See, Paul is using courtroom language here. And he's using rhetoric, the, the kind of the rhetorical questions that both of these questions get a resounding yes. No one, no one could separate us. Or no one can, de- can condemn us. And so I want to hone in on this last part here, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn us? No one, absolutely no one. Some of you might not be familiar with the word justification, but it is a glorious biblical word. And here's what it means. Justification is an end time verdict that has present reality implications in our lives daily. That's what justification is. It's that end time verdict that has a present reality of that end time verdict now. And that end time verdict is not guilty. So here's the point. God, through the work of Jesus, has declared us not guilty. There is nothing that can be said that God has not said already. God's people are his people and no one can condemn us. Nothing can condemn us. But yet we have three accusers. We have three accusers that we face on a daily basis. The first is Satan. The same temptations that he tempted our first parents in the garden are the same temptations that we get every day. Did God really say Does God really love you? Are you sure about that? Go with your desires. And then there's the circumstances of life that when life gets hard and we're we're just wondering, God, how long, oh Lord, where, where are you? Where are you in my pain? Where are you in my suffering? Where are you in my trials? And then there... There is our sin, our sin that dwells within us. 
that indwelling sin. Where we kind of go, darn it, I gotta go and repent of that sin again. Why does it keep on popping its ugly head up? We are not condemned. Who is to condemn? No one. Now listen, this does not mean that we don't struggle with thoughts of condemnation or guilt or shame. Most of you know my story. Most of you um, have been here for over a year or whatever. And, and here's, so here, but if those of you that are here that don't, here's my story. I was a pastor for about eight years, full-time ministry. I uh, served at two churches and both of those churches were kind of in a church plant phase. After my wife and I and family left the first church, a year later, that church closed. And then we came to Oberlin, where we still live, and we ended up, I ended up pastoring a church there. But with that church, I ended up shepherding to a close. Are you following me? See, in the ministry world, if you don't show the numbers, then you're not looked at as successful. So when that happened after the second pastorate, my life was shattered. I was so overwhelmed with thoughts of condemnation. I just didn't know what to do with. Thoughts like, you can't pastor. You're never gonna preach again. Well, I guess we proved Satan wrong, huh? <laughs> you, you can't pastor a church, let alone lead and love your own family. You're a failure. You're not successful. You're worthless. Those were the thoughts that I was just so overwhelmed with. And you know what? It really hasn't been until preparing for this sermon that, that I realized that every single one of those thoughts were every single thing that I was trying to find my life and significance from. Being a pastor, being a parent, being a loving dad, every one of those things. And God was saying to me, he's saying, Mark, no, my, your hope, your hope is in me. Not because you're a great parent or a bad parent. You're not, your, your hope is in me, Mark, not because the church closed. Your hope is in me, Mark. Let me ask you, what thoughts of condemnation have you been struggling with this past week? Or just a couple of days ago, or maybe walking in to the church this morning and you are just overwhelmed with thoughts of condemnation. There is good news. And that good news is because of Christ, 
No one can condemn you, nothing, not even yourself. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John 3.20. 1 John 3.20. It's going towards the back there by Revelation. 1 John 3.20. Listen to these words. 1 John 3.20 says this. And we'll start in verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, did you get that? For whenever our heart condemns us. Do you know what that means? That means our hearts are gonna condemn us. (laughs) That's what that means. But then it says, God is greater than our heart. If you have a pen, circle that in your Bible. It is glorious. God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Amen? He knows everything. So those thoughts of condemnation, he already knows it. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you stand with two glorious words before him, not guilty. We are that convict on death row who has just heard right before the electric chair or right before the poison injected into him that he is going to die. He's getting the words, the pronouncement, not guilty. Because prior to that, we were estranged from God. We were alienated from God. Turn with me back to Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now there is no condemnation. Not later, but now. When you turn from your sin and trust in Christ as your substitute on the cross, God pronounces you not guilty. And God now says, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. God says now to the believer, I delight in you. I am so proud of you. You are my child. You are my son. You are my daughter. God is saying to substance now, well done. I'm delighted in you and I will continue to delight in you. Now you might say, well, Mark, um, you, you have no clue what I grew up with. You had no clue what I grew up with. Every single day I heard that I was trash, that I heard that I was nothing, that I could never ever measure up. In fact, I have experienced God's anger more than God's love. Isn't he a just and angry God, you might be wondering? 
Yes, but he is also a God who is perfectly loving with a love that is unstoppable. It is limitless. It is unbreakable and it is relentless. And those are what we, that's what we sang this morning. That nothing in all the earth can separate us from your love. So how can Paul proclaim that we're not condemned? Going on here in the text, because of what Jesus has done, not by what we do or will do. Look with me there in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Did you notice where Jesus is at in this text? Do you notice what he's doing? He's praying for you. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's praying for us right now at the right hand of God the Father. See, Jesus is not our condemner, but our prayer warrior. Really. Jesus is always personally involved in our lives. He's in our bedrooms. He's at work. He's in the decisions that we make. He's in the hardships that we go through. He is in our social life. He is with us when we get on Facebook. He is with us in our work life. He is with us in our spiritual life. He is with us in every aspect of our life and he is praying for us. He intercedes on our behalf and he never ever gets overwhelmed with our feelings of sin and shame and guilt. Is that not good news? Most of you probably have seen Bruce Almighty. Just by kind of the snickering in the audience, I can tell. Do you guys remember that part where all of a sudden he hears voices in the middle of the night and he's kind of going, what in the world is going on? Prior to this, he's just had a conversation with God, Morgan Freeman. Somehow that guy always gets to play a deity or something, you know, in a movie, I don't know. But anyway, and he hears voices in the middle of the night and he's getting up and he's like, what's going on? Why am I hearing all this? And he's trying to figure out how do I organize these thoughts? And, you know, he calls out post-it and all of a sudden all these post-its, you know, come plodding on him and he's covered with post-its and the whole, uh, whole, all, whole apartment is covered with post-its. And then he says, no, I need to file these. And all of a sudden a whole bunch of file cabinets appear. <laughs> and then he says, no, I got I to put them in a, in a database. So he then he gets this computer, this computer appears and all of a sudden he's got like, you know, 3,400,000 or whatever prayers. He's like, what? And he starts, you know, typing away, answering them. And because he's got God powers or whatever, he's able to get through it really quickly and all that stuff. And then he gets another 3 million prayers or even more. The dude's overwhelmed. That's not what Jesus is doing. That's not what Jesus is doing at all. He never, ever gets overwhelmed. He's not looking and going, oh my gosh, Mark is gonna come back again and 
he's going to repent of that same sin he did the other day? I can't handle this. No. It never happens. He never gets overwhelmed. Jesus is always personally involved in our lives. I love what Hebrews 7, 25 through 26 says. He always lives. It says, God is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him and rescue them because Christ is always interceding for us. He never takes a break. There's no rest. He has our backs. That's the first point. You ready for the second? No separation. No separation. Paul gives us two lists here. One that is specific to his kind of circumstances that he went through, what he experienced, most likely his audience's experiences too, and then a list that is more cosmic in scope. Look at me there in verses 35 through 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through what? Through our self-reliance? No, through our peachy personality? No, through our ability to get through hardships all by ourselves? No, through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. I love what the New Living Translation says in verse 35. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us? If we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Listen. No matter what we face in this life, we will never be separated from Christ's life. No matter what we experience and what we face in this life, we will never be separated from Christ's life. But isn't it true though, that it's when we go through a difficult time, a, a time where we just, we don't know what to do, where we can be begin to believe the lie that God, he doesn't care. That he doesn't love us. And we say things like, Lord, if you loved me, God, if you loved me, you wouldn't allow blank to happen. Fill in your blank. You wouldn't allow my loved one to get sick and die. You wouldn't allow me to go through this pain. You wouldn't allow me to go through this suffering. 
you wouldn't have allowed me to lose my job. You wouldn't let me experience such deep sorrow and loss if you really loved me. And then on top of that, it's the enemy's lies. See what's happening in your life? Does God really love you? Does God really care? Have you been there? What about now? Maybe you walked into church and you were just heavy with burdens and you don't know what to do with them. Be honest. William Cooper, looks like Cowper, but it's pronounced Cooper, wrote a hymn called God Works in a Mysterious Way. You know, this guy didn't have any great life. He wasn't an adventurer. He wasn't a, a traveler or whatever. He was 27 years old when Jonathan Edwards died. The great preacher. And William Cooper suffered all of his life from depression. If you look at his life, every 10 years he had incredible depression and several times this man tried to kill himself. Till a man came into his life by the name of Pastor Cotton, led him to the Lord, and then he befriended a guy by the name of John Newton. Does that sound familiar? From Amazing Grace, the former slave owner who had been set free, liberated by the gospel, and he befriended this man. This man became his pastor. And even after John Newton left, he still kept in touch with William Cooper till the day he died. Listen. Listen to the words of this hymn in verses three and four. God works in a mysterious way. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Isn't that beautiful? This is a man who was consumed with despair. But because of Christ getting a hold of his life, he's able to write these words. Now let's bring it down to street level here. Each of us here have suffered loss. Those who are dear to us, the loss of a job opportunity, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a friendship, the loss of friends that have said goodbye, and maybe even the loss of a church. And yet in Christ, we can never suffer the loss of his love. 
Again, the New Living Translation says, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Did you catch that? Neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Are you anxious today? That can't separate you from God's love. What is your greatest fear today? It can't separate you from God's love. God says, I've got you covered. I've got your back. On your worst day, where just everything's going wrong and you're sitting all over the place. God says, I've got your back. I won't stop pursuing you. I won't stop calling you out. But you know what? His love, <laughs> his love is so, so unlike our love. Isn't it? Our love is impatient. With our love, we want instant results tomorrow or yesterday. Our love is, it's fragile. It's inconsistent. It fails. Our love keeps track of all the wrongs that people do, people that hurt us. It's selfish, it's conditional, but not God's love. Look, here's the point. Our salvation does not depend on our love for Jesus, but on his love for us. That is good news. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary, he makes this triumphant statement regarding Christ's love for us. He says, our love is weak and frail and fallible. It wanes and waxes. It comes and goes. Thank God my salvation does not depend on me, but on God's love to me. Not upon my frail grasp of him, but upon his strong grasp of me. His grasp of you and me. What amazing love. What divine love. A love that supersedes all loves. I love what it says in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. It says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and nothing can snatch them out of my hand or my father's hand. That's double security right there. Nothing. Well, I want to close with three questions for you as we think about God's love. 
When do you doubt God's love for you? That's the first question. If again, you're taking notes, you want to write these down. Question number two is, why do, why do you doubt God's love for you? Why do we doubt God's love for us? And then question number three is, how do we respond when we doubt God's love for us? So question number one, when do you doubt God's love for you? Maybe it's when your, your health goes south. Or maybe it's when you have car trouble. Or you don't get the raise that you were hoping for. Or that new position at work. Maybe it's a broken relationship that has brought many, many years of pain. I don't know about you, but I tend to doubt God's love for me every day. <laughs> I mean, come on, let's be honest. If I just get the little bit of, uh, just a little bit of a cold coming on, I'm like, God, do you really love me? You know, I'm, I'm getting ready to preach here, you know, here in a couple of weeks. Do you really love me? Or, you know, what about being stuck in traffic and you're late for work because you didn't set your alarm or whatever and you're in traffic and you're going, God, do you really love me? I'm stuck in traffic here. Or maybe that test that you had to cram for if you're a student and you don't know how you're going to do it and you're going, God, do you really love me? Do you want me to have an A on this? <laughs> we doubt God's love every day. Maybe it's when you look at your bank account and you gotta go, God, do you really love me? Because I'm not feeling love right now. <laughs> Listen. What we're saying is when my life gets uncomfortable, God, <laughs> I don't think you love me. But see, that's where God meets us in his grace. Whether it's being stuck in traffic or studying for a test or getting a cold or worse cancer, God loves you in that uncomfortable time. So listen, your doubting in God's love does not make God love you less. But you know what it can do because it does in my own life? can make you love God less. But isn't that amazing about God's love? That even though we're loving him less, he never stopped loving us. He's loving us through that time of doubt. I love what Isaiah 41.10 says. Listen to this. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. 
I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my right hand. Do you hear those promises? I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's God. So now, question number two is then, why would we ever consider doubting God's love for us if that's his love? Why do our hearts become more callous towards him? Because deep down inside, we don't believe that God is incredibly good. And if he is not good, then he does not have my good in mind and is absent in my life. One author says this, pain, pain does not indicate the absence of God. Pain invites us into communion with Jesus and greater dependence on him as we yearn for his coming while sharing his sufferings. Listen, God does not give you a pain-free life. He doesn't give me a pain-free life. He doesn't give anyone a pain-free life. He doesn't go, oh, pass, you're looking good today. I'm gonna give you a pain-free life. He doesn't do that. But he gives us a life dependent on the one who is more than able to bear our pain. Amen. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. That's the bad news, right? In this world, you're gonna have tribulation. But he also said, take Heart, because I have overcome this world. John 16, 33. So the last question I wanna ask you is, how do we respond when we doubt God's love? How do we respond? Let me suggest two ways. We have two ways to respond to God's love in times of hardship and trial. Either we get bitter, either we get bitter, or we get better. Either we get bitter in our relationship to God and you say, God, if this is how it's going to be, then forget you. Maybe some of you are there this morning. Or we get better. And we say, God, I don't understand this. I don't understand why I'm going through this time of trial, but I will trust in you. And we might not ever understand, right? But to trust in him is better than trusting in ourselves and becoming bitter.
So if you're here today and you, you're just filled with rage against God, there has been bitterness creeping into your heart for years. You want to know how you get rid of that? You repent. You turn from it. And you trust in a loving God that loves you even in your cold heart bitterness so that he can set you on a path that is better and best in following Christ. Do you see how amazing God's love is for you? Unbelievable. And what's even more unbelievable, that in our lack of love, he still loves us the same. So what do we do with this, church? What do I do with it? What do you do with it? What do we do with this? We let it compel us. We let it drive our hearts. We let God give us joy in the midst of that despair. That's what we do. And we share with others who are going through trial. We're not. It's that kind of love that compels me to get up in the morning and to trust him all the time again. It's that kind of love. William Cooper ended up, most likely, it's kind of unsure, but taking his life. But I just read to you a hymn that he wrote. This man knew Christ. And yet because of the fallen, corrupt, broken world that we lived in, his life, he left, was shattered. And when he died, he entered into glory with his father welcoming him with loving arms. That is Christ's love for us. Let it compel you, church. Let it transform you by his grace. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I just thank you, Lord, that because of what Christ has done on the cross, not because of what we do or will do or won't do, that you still love us. So Lord, if you love us in this way, a love that we can never be separated from, then Lord, help us to live a life that is filled with that love, that has more patience, that has more kindness, that depends on your grace to be transformed into the likeness of your son. In Christ's name I pray, amen.